Hello everybody, Kyle here. Welcome back to a new installment of my Communist Book Club. In today's episode, we're going to be looking at the continuation of 10 stories in a red interior from Svetlana Alexievich's Secondhand Time, The Last of the Soviets. If you're reading along in physical form, today's chapter begins on page 78, titled On Brothers and Sisters, Victims and Executioners, and The Electorate. Before we get into this episode, uh, more housekeeping stuff, as always, and with this one, a formal warning, this one is a very suicide-heavy chapter the whole way through. Uh, it also has to do with German occupation and references to mass executions. So this one's definitely going to be a heavier episode if you're not looking for that. Um, some of the other ones are a, a little bit lighter. This whole book is, you know, following a certain theme that is uh, of governments coming and going and changing in the rise and fall. So I just feel like it's always good to give a heads up right off the bat. On a really exciting note, the Revelator Podcast Network, my own creation, where I host all these podcasts, we are doing our very first charity for the month of March. So anyone that becomes a subscriber up on that website, revelatornetwork.com, if you subscribe between now and the very end of March, we are going to be giving away significant proceeds of those memberships to muscular sclerosis treatment and research. That's a very, very personal, wonderful charity cause for us because one of my co-hosts is diagnosed and she's been with it for seven years now. Um, the research is very, very important. I, I don't want to drum it home too much here at the start, but if, if you feel like subscribing, if you want to support the network, uh, a $5 subscription, we give two of that away. If you're one of the people who wants to do a $20 sub, we're giving 10 of that away. And if you want to do a $50 one, become a founding member, we're giving away a whole $30 of that. So a wonderful way to put your money to work in supporting good health causes and research and also supporting us and letting us grow these shows. So without further ado, let's dive straight into it. On Brothers and Sisters, Victims and Executioners, and the Electorate. Alexander Porfiryevich Sharpilo, retired, 63 years old, as told by his neighbor Marina Tihonova Isaychuk. On the radio, they'd said that after the war was over, we would all be happy. And Khrushchev, I remember, promised. He said that communism would soon be upon us. Gorbachev swore it too. And he spoke so beautifully. It had sounded so good. Now Yeltsin's making the same promises. He even threatened to lie down on the train tracks. I waited and waited for the good life to come. When I was little, I waited for it. And then when I got a little older, now I'm old. To make a long story short, everyone lied and things only ever got worse. Wait and see. Wait and suffer. Wait and see. My husband died. He went out, collapsed, and that was that. His heart stopped. You couldn't measure it or weigh it, all the trouble we've seen. But here I am, still alive, living, my children all scattered. My son is in Novosibirsk, and my daughter stayed in Riga with her family, which nowadays means that she lives abroad, in a foreign country. They don't even speak Russian there anymore. I have an icon in the corner and a little dog so that there's someone to talk to. One stick of kindling won't start a fire, but I do my best. Oh, it's good of God to have given man cats and dogs and trees and birds. He gave man everything so that he would be happy and life wouldn't seem too long. So life wouldn't wear him down. The one thing I haven't gotten sick of is watching the wheat turn yellow. I've gone hungry so many times, 
that the thing I love best is ripening grain, seeing the sheaves sway in the wind. For me, it's as beautiful as the paintings in a museum are for you. Even now, I don't hanker after white bread. There is nothing better than salted black bread with sweet tea. Wait and see, and then wait some more. The only remedy we know for every kind of pain is patience. Next thing you know, your whole life's gone by. As you just heard there, we're picking up with Marina Tahonova Izaichuk, relating her tragic life to our author. And as she's telling this story aloud, she tells it in a stream of consciousness. So it bops in and out of certain storylines and goes all around. So forgive me for also following hers. But what we did not hear, expecting you to read along a little bit in the book for this one, is her neighbor sets himself on fire, her neighbor Sashka. They were lifelong friends. It sounds like almost flirtatious acquaintances at times, but lifelong friends. Uh, they always looked out for each other. And at one point, he just commits suicide because he felt that the collapse of the Soviet Union put a lot of his life to waste. A lot of the struggles that he lived uh, panned out and not well, panned out to completely ruin his bank account, as we're going to learn here in a few minutes. But she makes some more morbid commentary. In what direction do you look? After death, there is nothing. But when you're alive, you can walk in the breeze and through the garden. So where are these happy people? Happy people don't want to die. Her story is that of love and loss. As we heard, her family's moved abroad. She's struggling to pay for kindling and such to just survive. And as she's relaying this story, she's going to really, really open up to us. I found this chapter difficult at first. But as we get through a couple more of these clips, it's going to become extremely enlightening. People have started believing in God again because there is no other hope. In school, they used to teach us that Lenin was God and Karl Marx was God. The churches were used to store grain and stockpile beets. That's how it was until the war came. War broke out. Stalin reopened the churches so prayers would be said for the victory of Russian arms. He addressed the people, brothers and sisters, my friends. And what had we been before that? Enemies of the people, kulaks and kulak sympathizers. In our village, all of the best families were subjected to dekulakization. If they had two cows and two horses, that was already enough to make them kulaks. They'd ship them off to Siberia and abandon them in the barren taiga forest. Women smothered their children to spare them the suffering. Oh, so much woe. So many tears. More tears than there is water on this earth. Then Stalin goes addressing his brothers and sisters. We believed him, forgave him, and defeated Hitler. He showed up with his tanks, gleaming and iron-plated, and we defeated him anyway. But what am I today? Who are we now? We're the electorate. I watch TV. I never miss the news. We're the electorate now. Our job is to go and vote for the right candidate, then call it a day. I was sick one time and didn't make it to the polling station, so they drove over here themselves. With a red box. That's the one day they actually remember us. Yep. I find her commentary towards the end very interesting. The commentary about becoming the electorate. Marina painted a very grim picture of war, or even pre-war, with collectivization and other heavy-handed approaches. Now, we're not here to debate whether or not those approaches are, are good or bad in the net sum of things, other than in this woman's case. 
She seems to be telling us it's not. What she suffered was a lifelong tragedy. A tragedy of starting in a chaotic collectivization time, living through war, and then seeing a collapse of sorts. Well, more than of sorts. She's going to go into continued detail, so I don't want to spoil too much. In the book, she tells an interesting anecdote about the barrack she lived in. She mentions moving in there thinking it was a very short uh, very short time to be spent. This was something a barracks built right after the war. And at this time, she's been living there for 30 years waiting for an apartment. She mentions Gaidar coming through and basically laughing in their faces in a way. She feels like her entire life was wasted, thinking it was going to be a better world. And now she just waits out her final days. And taking into account her opinion, she feels like no one cares about her now. Poor pensions, poor quality of living, and just overall feeling forgotten. What have you done, Sashka? I followed him to the ambulance. I'm sick and tired of living. Call my son. Tell him to come to the hospital. He could still talk. His jacket was burnt. His shoulder was all white and clean. He left 5,000 rubles. That used to be good money. He took it out of his savings account and left it next to his note. His life savings. Before perestroika? That kind of money could buy you a car. A Volga. The most expensive model. But today, it was only enough for a new pair of boots and a funeral wreath. That's our life. He lay there on the stretcher, turning black. Turning black right before my eyes. The doctors also took that kid who'd found him, who'd grabbed my wet sheets off the clothesline. I'd washed them that day and thrown them on top of him. A stranger, just a student. He was passing by and suddenly saw a man in flames, sitting in his vegetable patch, hunched over and on fire, smoldering, silent. That's how he described him later, silent and burning, burning alive. In the morning, his son knocked on my door. Papa is dead. I fear pulling bits and pieces of the story doesn't do it justice, but I can't think of any better way to do it that fits our format and that tells the story appropriately. It feels odd to me because of the extreme juxtaposition of her comments. Again, if you're reading along or listening along in the, in the, the formal book, uh, it's, it's in and out of thought. So she begins the chapter telling us about this man burning in the garden and then begins to give more context as the story goes on. But to piecemeal it together so you, you understand to catch you up, based on my last commentary where we were talking about how a complete life in this case, her and Sashka felt like they had given so, so much to the state to have the Soviet Union collapse on them for the 5,000 rubles he left behind. What could have previously bought the most expensive of cars pre-perestroika could now only buy a funeral wreath and a couple pairs of boots. I, I, I think this is something many of us fear when it comes to money and, uh, you know, what, what we put our lives work towards Will it actually be there to pay off for us? It's, it's, it, there's a whole other conversation we could get into about the meaning of life and how to spend your time and your energy, what, what's productive and what feels good to you. The, the, I, at the end of the day, I guess the, the issue we face here is when you see that you work so hard and it all goes to nothing in their eyes, what's left? She says he was tired of waiting. So he took the matter into his own hand. And we hear about a student walking back from a technical college who sees this man burning in his vegetable patch. 
silent and burning. And then she hears that he actually passed away overnight. To hear that he wasn't dead in the scene either is tragic, that the student ended up grabbing wet wet towels and sheets and, and threw them over him, and he was sort of alive as he gets into the ambulance. It's uh, very, very grim, which is why I put the, the warning right off the top. It's going to get continuously grim throughout here. So I, I warn you this, I, I, I kind of thought that when I was reading through this chapter, I'd read this many months ago, but I thought this was, you know, the, the really, really hard part. Uh, but, it, but it does go on, as we're going to hear the story of a couple Jewish boys who meet a very untimely fate during the occupation here in a moment. But, but before we do that, I, I think uh, Marina Tahonova is going to give us some final thoughts about pensions before she dives into World War II. There is no surviving on today's pensions. I work as a nanny, raising other people's children. They give me a kopeck. I buy sugar and cheap bologna. What can you afford on our pensions? You get yourself some bread and milk, and then there isn't enough left over for slippers. It's just not enough. Old people used to sit on the benches in their courtyards, carefree, prattling. Not anymore. Some collect empty bottles around town. Others stand in front of the church, begging. Some sell sunflower seeds or cigarettes at the bus stop. Ration cards for vodka. A person got trampled here in the liquor aisle. Trampled to death. Vodka is worth more than, what's it called? That American dollar. You can buy anything with vodka. You can use it to pay the plumber and the electrician, too. Otherwise, they won't even come. So, well, life went by. The only thing money can't buy is time. Weep before God or not. You can't buy it. That's just the way it is. Sashka made the decision to stop living. He didn't want to go on. Returned his ticket back to God himself. I think this is a great time to call out uh, another sort of charity effort that I found online. For those that follow Bald and Bankrupt, the YouTuber who travels through a lot of the ex-Soviet satellite state regions, I believe he was in Belarus at the time when he met a man by the name of Kolya, who now has a channel created about him on YouTube called Kolya the Storyteller. It's not administered by Kolya. Kolya is an aging man who loves to tell stories of his time um, uh, near the war, uh, growing up under Stalin. It's, it's absolutely fascinating, the stories he, he goes on about. It's extremely heartwarming to hear his positive messages out to the world. And what's all the better about it is, with the help of some social workers in the area, People online, people who, like myself, love hearing those stories, have donated significant sums to help out the village that he's a part of because he lives in an area that was worst hit by Chernobyl. There's not many people left in the villages. We're talking maybe two to five houses at most. And some of those houses can be over a 20 or 30 minute walk away. So with the help of social workers in the area, and this great team, I believe one of whom is based in Russia, and I think one might be Denmark. I can't remember where the other man administers the channel. I'm pulling this from memory. But they do great work. It's called Kolya the Storyteller. They've branched out to another channel. If I can find which one that is, too, I'd love to post it here. They've gone on to start interviewing many of the other people in the village or surrounding villages as a way of bolstering the community kind of regrowing the Russian village. Uh, that's a topic all on its own for the future, which I'm always very interested in. I've seen great 
great work by young Russians to kind of reinvigorate villages that are neglected and, and, and going out of, uh, well, I guess just losing all their villagers. So they're fading into obscurity, if you will. Great, great work being done. Check out Kolya the Storyteller. If you'd like to donate over there, that's another wonderful cause. Now we're going to move in to talk about World War II. I would give everything I have to prevent a war. There's nothing more terrifying than war. We were under fire from German guns. Our houses cracking apart in flames. Our gardens burning. Oh, Lord. Sashka and I would talk about the war every day. His father went missing in action. His brother died fighting with the partisans. They herded the prisoners into Brest. Throngs of people drove them down the roads like they were horses, then kept them in fenced-in lots where they'd drop dead and lie there like garbage. All summer long, Sashka would go there with his mother to look for his father. He'd start telling me and wouldn't be able to stop. They looked for him among the living and the dead. No one was afraid of death anymore. It was an everyday occurrence. Before the war, we'd sing, From the Taiga to the British Sea, There's nothing more mighty than the Red Army. We sang it proudly. Spring came. The ice melted. It all broke apart, and the whole river behind our village was choked with corpses. Naked, blackened, only their belts shining. Belts with little red stars. Our speaker mentions that another journalist came to ask about the war already, where she recounts her experience and how she would discuss it with Sashka. As we heard, Sashka's father went missing during the war and his brother died fighting with the partisans, a story that she's also going to talk about a little bit later, what the partisans were like. For those unaware, partisans were resistance movement fighters within the Soviet Union uh, during the Nazi occupation. These were people that took to fighting in villages, uh, driving German troops out of potential areas, a bunch of sabotage, and, and it has very mixed views or, or governmental approaches within the USSR under Stalin, at times being treated more like criminals, at other times being commemorated. It's had a back and forth legacy, and I, I'm not the most familiar with that, but we're going to hear her take on it shortly because, uh, well, she has an interesting encounter, to say the least. I will never forget the war. The Germans invaded our village. Young and cheerful, with so much noise. They arrived in huge vehicles and their three-wheeled motorcycles. I'd never even laid eyes on a motorcycle before. All we had at the collective farm were these one-and-a-half-ton trucks with wooden beds. These machines that were low to the ground. You should have seen those German trucks. They were as tall as houses. Their horses, not horses, but mountains. They painted a message on the wall of our schoolhouse. The Red Army has abandoned you. We started living under German rule. There were a lot of Jews in our village. Avram, Yankel, Morduk. They rounded them all up and took them out to the shtetl. They'd brought their pillows and blankets, but they were all killed right away. They rounded up every Jew in the district and shot them all in a single day, tossed them into a pit, thousands of them, thousands. And there we go. As I mentioned, this chapter is definitely going to get increasingly darker, and it's, it's why we're here doing this book club to begin with. We're here to teach and educate and share knowledge, share humanity, compassion, more humanity. I see this day and age 
I, I, I specifically made this podcast because in this day and age, the the word communism gets thrown around to be this horrible, ugly, evil word, specifically in the West, in the United States, most of all, I, I'd assume. And the danger to that language is it also saddles up right next to anti-Semitism. They ride in the same car, if you will. I don't really know that you can have one without the other. I, you you kind of can, but I don't know. Uh, you just start picking back those layers, and it, I feel like they say potato, potato to that one. It's, it's all, all in the same bag. So part, pardon my rambling. My point here being we need to be talking. We need to be communicating. We need to be sharing because when fear is allowed to be stoked, this is the outcome to it. We hear about uh, the mass deaths of, of Soviet troops. For those that are familiar with the start of the war, the, the Soviet response in certain areas was was very underwhelming and resulted in the death of thousands and thousands of soldiers needlessly. I do believe that's what she's referencing at the very start of this, was the the lack of preparation, the bulldozing of, of the town, basically. The, the, well, the blitzkrieg of, of the area, to use the proper terms. So the fierce fighting came into town, they occupied the town, the Soviet troops were murdered, they were... Sounds like burnt and then dumped into a, a kind of a river area. She says the bodies burnt and charred, clogged the river. And she talks about the Jews in the town being rounded up, taken out to the shtetl and being killed. It's absolutely tragic to hear about this sort of stuff. And it's, it's why we're here. It's why we're doing this. It's why we're sharing, again, the compassion, the humanity, the willingness to see other people as people. What she said, we don't need more war. Our neighbor hid two little Jewish boys in her barn. Adorable kids. Real cherubs. Everyone was shot, but they hid. They managed to run away. One was eight and the other one was ten. My mother would bring them milk. Children, hush, she told us. Not a word of this to anyone. In my neighbor's family, there was an old, old grandfather. He remembered the other war with the Germans. The first one. He'd feed the boys and weep. Oh, children, they'll capture you and torture you. If I could stand to do it, you'd be better off if I killed you myself. Those were his words. And the devil hears everything. Three Germans showed up on a black motorcycle with their big black dog. Someone had informed on them. There are always people willing to do things like this. People whose souls are black. They're alive, but it's like they are soulless. Their hearts are just medical, not human hearts. They have no pity for anyone. The kids ran into the field, into the grain. The Germans sent their dog in after them. Afterward, their remains had to be gathered up, shred by shred. There were nothing but rags left of them, nothing to bury. No one even knew their last names. Then the Germans tied our neighbor to their motorcycle and made her run until her heart burst. Clearly a horrifying story, and, and not the first that I've heard of that kind before. The, the sheltering of children. I, I was reading a book about a year back that was, was on the topic. Hearing about the informants, I, I, I've personally had the honor of, of listening to a, a Holocaust survivor share that story and the story of others of having families inform for extra rations or whatever it might be informed to get better conditions in their own life. And in this case, we hear that happen. The, the, the two Jewish boys hiding in the woods were getting 
care and some food here and there, but were ultimately mauled to death by a German dog that they sicked on them. And of course, that wasn't enough of a message, their sadistic execution and torture, but making the woman who was helping them to make her run behind the motorcycle. Well, a lot of conversations come out of World War II about what, what, what this sort of war allowed people to do with their own dark impulses and psyches. And there, there's something especially morbid and twisted about the, uh, the fates they inflicted upon people. Not that I guess that's unique in the aspect of war, but it feels especially sadistic. Uh, I feel I, all I can all I can say in moments like this is, is just learn, educate, research. If you have kids, make sure they know about these things too. make sure I, I'm just very lucky I had such a quality education that I was able to have these encounters with people that shared these stories. To, to sit here and read this book really makes me it, it flips me right back into those lecture halls where, where they were speaking right back into those auditoriums. I hear this story relayed by this voice actor and I just it, I don't know, it just makes one one wonder and think what what happened. So after this, she talks about what happened after the war. She talks about how they normalized aspects of, of life during the occupation, the, the lack of having things, lack of variety of food. The Germans took their pigs, they caught their chickens. And in this case, the partisans had actually taken the cow. They come in to their village at one of these nights, show up at the house, take the family's sewing machine and dresses. She says the men had guns. We assume they're partisans, but were they? You don't really know. Were they just robbers? Who, who was this that showed up? The back and forth of war, as we can see it across history, does leave people very open to this kind of pillaging by both sides. The guerrilla fighters tend to take from their neighbors and, and folks of, of what they need, and the occupiers obviously take what they want. But it leaves the people at the end of the day who are just extremely un... Uh, it, just everything is, is absolutely taken from them. She says, you'll learn a lot living through war. And I think this actually might be a wonderful place to call it quits for this week. I was planning on playing a couple more clips, but we're kind of close to time here. And she's going to change direction again, leaving the war in just a minute. She'll be talking about what her life was afterwards, what her life was like being a, a consumal member, what it was like trying to become a teacher, what work she did and how she got to this stage in her life. It's going to be an interesting conclusion. It won't be the longest of conclusions. It will probably be another 15-minute or so episode. I know we have about another five minutes of clips to play. So like I said, somewhere around uh, 15 minutes, that's probably the appropriate wrap-up. If you'd like to complete this chapter on your own, I most definitely encourage you to do so. If you're interested in giving to the charity I specify at the top of the episode, please, please, please head over to revelatornetwork.com. You can see there's a become a member button at the top. We also have a list to a ton of different podcasts we do here on the network. It's been my dream to build this out, to do more than one podcast at a time. So now we're currently featuring four with a fifth one on the way. So if you'd like to get to listening, we have all kinds of different topics, including the paranormal, obviously communism here, and we have two video game shows. I'm looking forward to expanding and having you be a member along the path. So no better time to sign up. If you can spare the money, a wonderful thing to support. If not, sharing this show with friends, family, and the rest is just as important to us. 
that helps get the word out there, gets us more listeners, and ultimately, with larger listener counts, we get subsidized through ads and other things of that sort, sponsorships, offers. So share the show, get people involved, keep building that Revelator Network family, and stay safe, everyone. Until next time, take care. Are you enjoying listening to these shows on the Revelator Podcast Network? If so, let us know. By leaving reviews and sharing the shows with friends, it's a wonderful way to introduce our show to a whole new audience. And just in case you don't know, we've got four podcasts at the moment, including our Paranormal Chaos and Shadow, Kyle's Communist Book Club, Stellaris Emergency Broadcast for all you gamers, and Kyle's Valheim Bulletin eh, for the gamers that just can't get enough. We got a lot going on, so consider becoming a member at chaosandshadow.com forward slash subscribe, or check out my personal page there at chaosandshadow.com forward slash Kyle.